Yeah, I was approached by Penguin Random House um, in London. They were looking for someone to co-author Hannah's book with her. Um, and I had met her by chance many years ago when I interviewed her for another book um, that had come out about her, uh, a, a book for like um, middle school children. And I met her then and I was very taken because I had grown up, you know, feeling very attached to the story of Anne Frank. And to meet an actual real friend of Anne Frank felt extraordinary. So let's take our listeners back to pre-war Amsterdam. Both girls and Anne Hannah were from German families who had fled to Amsterdam in the 1930s to escape the Nazis. So growing up, they had a lot in common. Yeah, their parents were, you know, speaking to them at home in German. Their parents actually became close friends themselves. They were they lived to, they lived in buildings that were adjacent to one another. Uh, the Frank family would come to the Gosler family for Shabbat and for Passover seders, and they would go to their house. The Gosler would go to their house for New Year's Eve, um, and they, you know, their lives were completely intertwined. Um, the both mothers, the mother of Anna and the mother of Hannah, were desperately homesick for Germany. Um, Hannah's mother for Berlin, and um, and Anna's mother from Hamburg. Uh, sorry, sorry, Anna's mother from Frankfurt, rather. And uh, they sort of think bonded over this, you know, sort of missing of, of their of their former lives. And um, the girls grew up together, going to the same schools since the age of four together. And they were always um, the same class and they had the same circle of friends and they were, just, you know, they were almost like sisters. And before the German invasion, their lives were quite good. They were comfortable, even though they were from refugee families. And they had the, the, the you know, the day-to-day life of any small girl of that age. Yeah, in part because the parents did a very, very um, you know, uh, good job at trying to protect them from the outside world. They, um, the danger was encroaching. Um, they were aware that their parents were glued to the radio reports and reading the newspapers. And Hannah herself was someone who liked to read the newspaper. So the girls grew up in Amsterdam. Um, they very much felt themselves to be Dutch little girls. They even had a secret whistle that they whistled to each other um, when they wanted to collect one another uh, to go off to school. And it was the Dutch anthem, which I think sort of speaks to the fact about how Dutch they felt. Um, at home, their parents tried to keep things as calm as possible, although, of course, they're listening to the radio and they're watching, they're reading the, 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 the newspaper reports, and Hannah herself would come home from school and read the newspaper and have pretty in-depth conversations with her parents, but they did try to sort of keep things as normal as possible. Um, and, of course, Holland was, uh, you know, was, was not invaded until May 1940, and until that time, um, both families, like everyone else in Holland, assumed that Holland would stay neutral because Holland had been neutral in World War One. And so um, they didn't really, you know, they didn't they didn't consider that anything had happened to Holland. Holland was going to be a safe island. So the Nazis invaded um, and their lives of these two girls obviously began to change. Restrictions were introduced on the daily lives of Jews. Correct. Yes. And at first it was sort of a slow, they called it like a, a velvet glove um, kind of occupation. At first, you know, the family, the Hannah's family completely panicked, you know, like so many other families, they started destroying any kind of documents they thought might be incriminating. Remember, Hannah's father was a very high up official in the Weimar government. He was actually a deputy minister, the head of the government press office. And so they, he thought he'd for sure be like arrested imminently. Um, so they were very busy, like literally Hannah's job was flushing down pieces of paper down the toilet that, um, that the father thought they needed to get rid of. Um, so they were very scared at first, and then things seemed to settle down. And then slowly, slowly, you know, there were different laws that crept up. Jews couldn't 
um, go to the movie theater. Jews couldn't go to the parks. Jews couldn't go to the go to the swimming pool. The girls got very frustrated. It was summer. It was hot. They couldn't go swimming. Um, and then, you know, other things, they couldn't go on the tram and they couldn't even go to schools with other with other children. They could only go to Jewish schools. Um, all of it was like slowly, slowly kind of like frog boiling in hot water. Like they and they kept thinking they could just manage it. They could just hold on, hold on. The allies would be coming. And Otto Frank in particular, Anna Frank's father, always was especially optimistic that, that, that this would happen. And that was sort of part of why Hannah was so surprised later on to find out that despite all of his optimism, he'd been planning for the worst. So eventually the family went into hiding in the annex. We all know about that story. And yeah. Hannah had no idea. She thought yeah. the Frank family had fled to Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. She comes to the door in the morning in July, I think it was July 6th, 1942, to um, play with Anna that morning. And suddenly the boarder answers the door, not, not a member of the Frank family. And he, and he tells her, the family has gone and she comes, she's totally shocked. Um, he says that they seem to, have, Mr. Frank has scribbled a note on the desk that sort of, to sort of throw, throw everybody off the trail to sort of insinuate that they've gone off to Switzerland and been smuggled across the border. Um, and uh, Hannah and her friend, um, good friend Jacqueline, Jack come back, who is also good friends with Anna, to go, you know, look at what, if any clues were left behind, if perhaps a goodbye letter was left for them, if she, they wanted to see if she kept her diary, um, and if she left her diary behind, perhaps. Um, they wanted to see what she, what she had taken with her, and they were shocked to see that a lot of her favorite books and toys and even some brand new shoes she'd just gotten for her birthday were still exactly where they were. And most shockingly, her beloved cat was still there, which did not make any sense to them. Um, so, yeah, that was, so, 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 you know, so she... Later on, that was the first of her friends to suddenly vanish, but that was the summer of 42. But by the fall of 42, every day that Hannah went to school into their classroom, another child would be gone. And they didn't know if it was because that child had been deported or if that child had gone into hiding. But at least Anna, Anna, she knew, Anna, she thought, she thought was safe in Switzerland where, where the Frank family had, had um, the grandmother and cousins and aunts and uncle. And so she was very excited, thinking that at least she was safe. And as she always imagined her having like hot chocolate with her grandmother in, in Basel. Now, we would imagine that this would be the last time these girls would ever meet, knowing the way things developed. But amazingly, they did meet again briefly <sighs> in Bergen-Belsen. Tell our listeners about that incredible encounter. Yeah, so... Um, Hannah is in Bergen-Belsen at this point. She's been there for almost a year, and it's February 1945, and it's very cold, and it's very um, it's a miserable scene in the camp. It's becoming much, much more crowded than it ever has been, um, with prisoners coming from the east. Uh, basically, uh, prisoners from Auschwitz are being shuttled over to uh, Bergen-Belsen inside Germany, either either by foot or on these terrible marches or by train. And um, next to the camp that um, Hannah and her sister are in is another another a tent camp is set up and they start seeing through the fence these women in black and white striped pajamas looking very gaunt um, and skeletal um, arriving um, and soon enough um, the Germans don't want the women fraternizing and they put up like a straw between they stuff the fence with straw and they make it they forbid anyone approaching the fence on punishment of death but somehow you know women being women find a way to talk and communicate and um, the women hear Dutch on the other side of the fence at one point, and word gets back to Hannah that Anna Frank and her sister Margot are in, are on the other side of the fence, and she's stunned. She can't believe it. She, she's crushed. She's always thought that Anna, Anna, and I call her Anna by the way, not to be pretentious, but because that is that was how her name was pronounced, and that's always how I heard it from from Hannah when we were interviewing. Um, 
anyway, so she hears Anna's on the other side of the fence and she decides to go uh, after curfew one very dark, cold night and look for her. Um, even though it's extremely dangerous, there are spotlights, um, there are German soldiers patrolling the fence, and she would be shot on sight if she was discovered. But she creeps up to the fence one night and in a very small voice says, Hello. <laughs> and, um, and then lo and behold, um, a, a voice comes back. It's um, August von um, Pels. August um, von Pels was um, in hiding with the Frank family. And she says, oh, you must be here for Anna, sort of casually as if you, you know, if, if you were in a normal situation. Oh, you must be here for Anna. I will bring her to the fence to talk to you. And Anna appears. Um, remember, they can't see each other because the fence is stuffed with straw, but they speak and they recognize each other's voices. Although Anna's voice is a very hoarse, uh, faint voice at this point. She's very sick. She's very weak and she's starving. And the girls both wail and they cry on opposite, opposite sides of this fence and sort of very quickly catch each other up on what has happened for them um, since they have last met. And, th and that was it? It was a one-off meeting? No, it was not a one-off meeting. You can read more about it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, one important detail is that Hannah, Anna, is, Anna, Anna is starving, and she begs Hannah for some food. And, and Hannah, not knowing where she's going to bring her any food from, says, yes, yes, I will go, go find you some, and returns to her barracks. And in an amazing act of you know, female solidarity, the women in the barracks co um, cobble together a little food that they do have, stuff it in a sock and out Hannah goes again the next night and throws it over the fence to Hannah. And um, unfortunately she then hears uh, some footsteps and a terrible wail and cry. And it's Anna hysterical because a woman and another woman who's, a, who's also a imprisoned person in this camp um, has stolen the food from her. Mm. And uh, Hannah's desperate to get Anna to stop crying um, and says, I will come back. Don't worry. I will come back. And, and she does. And uh, this time, Anna luckily does catch the food. And that is the last, um, sadly, they ever see or hear of one another. So Anna uh, perished in the camp along with most of the other residents. Hannah survived and she made Aliyah to Israel. She did. She did. She came over actually in pre-state Israel in 1947. She arrives um, and she, she um, decides to become a nurse. The one book she had with her the entire time she was in um, the concentration camps was a... Uh, was a um, biography of um, Florence Nightingale. <laughs> mm. She always says if she had a biography of somebody else, she would have been whatever their profession was. She read it over and over and over again. And she decided to become a nurse, and that's what she did. Um, and she ended up having a family, um, three children, 11 grandchildren, 32-plus great-grandchildren, um, and uh, had a very rich, full full life in Israel. Um, how difficult was it for Hannah to uh, recall her life? It wasn't, uh, it's a good question. It was, it, it's, it, she had been telling her story. She was sort of, uh, since 1957. So just, uh, you know, 12 years after the war ended, Otto Frank basically anointed her to go out and, and tell Anna's story and her story. And she, and she goes on a trip in 1957 to, to America, 18 cities and talks about what she endured in Bergen-Belsen and about her meeting of Anne Frank at this point. Keep in mind, the, the, the diary has been published. It's become an international bestseller. It's also, at this point, become a hit Broadway show. Um, so people are very curious to hear more about the famous Anne Frank. Um, but it's also one of the first times a Holocaust survivor is sharing her story, because it just had not been happening at that point. Um, people didn't really want to hear Holocaust survivor stories. Holocaust survivors uh, themselves felt, you know, some, in some cases sort of you know, uh, silenced. Um, and uh, so she'd been telling her story in one form or another since then. And so there was a lot of her story that she kind of 
had down, sort of like you press play and her story would come out of her. The challenge for me as, the, you know, she, this was her memoir, but I was writing it, you know, in her name um, uh, together with her was to go deeper and to get more details. And that involved, you know, you know, plumbing sort of the depths of her memory and, um, and also doing a lot of research and reading other accounts and other memoir and um, especially a lot of first person testimonies from, from other people who had been in the same places at the same time. Now, the book's only been out a few weeks, but I understand it's uh, so far it's doing remarkably well. It's yeah, it's uh, New York Times bestseller. It's also a bestseller in Canada. And it's um, I'm getting letters every day from people around the world saying they're deeply moved by it. People who, you know, Jews and non-Jews alike. And um, I'm really completely overwhelmed, as is Hannah's family, by by the response. And for listeners in Israel, it's available in bookstores here. That is a good question. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I know it's available in some bookstores in Israel, um, in Jerusalem specifically, but I, and I hope it'll be available more widely soon. You can Dina. also buy it online anywhere. It's uh, available online.